Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here on the last day of 2023. It is the 31st of December. We are transitioning to a new year tomorrow. And it is a time when we sometimes we look back and consider what's happened. And this year, of particular interest to me was the amount of rainfall we had. It was unlike last year, 2022, where we started off with a very wet January and February and remained above average throughout the course of the year. This year's rainfall was closer to average throughout much of the year. It was, in fact, in the second week of September we had kind of varied around the line and reached a low point of a little less, a little more than two inches below or right around two inches below average for the date there in the second week of September. And then the rains came. And since that time, we've had an abundance of precipitation here in Sitka. Measure, as measured at the airport, we're now over 20 inches above normal for the year. So definitely going to be ending the year here, pending what happens today and we're going to be ending the year with uh, something like 104, 105 inches of precipitation for the year versus a normal 30-year uh, average of around 84, 85, somewhere in that neighborhood. So, yeah, it's been an interesting fall, very wet fall, not to everybody's liking. But since I like to track these kind of weather phenomena, it uh, is a way that I keep interested. Definitely seem to be one series of storms after another over the past few weeks and, and even going back months a little bit. Uh, some exciting weather. If you've been out braving the rain and weather, I'd love to hear what you've been seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. If you'd just like to spend some time indoors listening to past shows, you can find the archive at sitkanature.org slash raven. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded yesterday with returning guests Paul Norwood and Brooke Schaefer. We spoke about some of their adventures and activities over the course of the past year, and we'll go ahead and join the conversation with Paul talking about getting into scuba diving. That's my big new thing this year, I would say, is scuba diving. It's been quite fun. We are long-time snorkelers, Brooke and me. We've been snorkeling here for a long time, and snorkeling here is great. It's much more low-key, way cheaper. I still have the same snorkeling gear pretty much that I had 10 years ago. You can't say that usually about scuba gear. And it cost almost nothing when I bought it. Yeah, it's, um, it's cheaper. It's um, freer, I guess, to snorkel. But at some point, you get down there and you run out of air and you have to come back up. And then you go back down to find it. And then you can't get a picture because you're... There's surge, and then you come back up, and then so I went ahead and uh, went to Hawaii, got certified to scuba, uh, went to Whittier, got certified to dry suit, went to Ketchikan, uh, got a dry suit there. Now I am diving with a coworker. It's fun to go down there, stay down there. I love it down there. So it's horrible getting the equipment, getting certified, carrying the equipment, setting up the equipment, drying the equipment, refilling the tank, all that stuff is bad. But those 45 minutes to an hour of being underwater, it's pretty cool. Makes it worth it. Yeah. Yeah, and you've seen quite a few new species for, for yourself. You know, I, I only observe indirectly through iNaturalist posts and, and that sort of a thing, but lots of nudibranchs and different kind of hermit crabs that seem to be Pretty much subtitle, I guess. Yeah, like the bearing crab, for example. Uh, those are things that you can see down there in great numbers uh, with lots of time. They're kind of hard to see. Uh, yeah, those ones with the really black eyes, I can't remember what those are 
Pagurus armatus, I think is That's the right. scientific name. Uh-huh. And I don't remember what the common name for those is, but those ones seem really distinctive. Often, they look like they're pretty large based on the shells that they're they in. They are, and they're not very shy either. So they'll just sit there. And I notice you get a lot of, uh, well, not just you, but other, other folks who are uh, scuba diving. It's not unusual to have pictures of fish, like, really close up. Are they just not afraid of you in the water? Or? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I think they are afraid of me in the water. It's just things when you're, what do they call it, poikilothermic. Your body temperature is the same as the outside temperature, and that temperature is, like, 54 degrees. Then it's just hard to move quickly. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Like, they are sometimes afraid, but they're not just moving very quickly. I suppose many of them are, I mean, especially the sculpins and stuff, they're relying on camouflage as well. So maybe their hope is, you're not seeing me here. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But that's not really true of, say, rockfishes, for example. (laughs) Sometimes uh, we get a good view of a lingcod, and that's always a treat. Um, Greenling are very abundant, and they're a little bit more fast-moving. Yeah, I remember snorkeling and seeing Greenland in at Sandy Beach, and there was enough surge and stuff, and I was trying to like follow them, but I was just bobbing like a cork, so I didn't have any weights on or anything. It was, it was difficult to keep up with them. But they didn't seem, they seemed wary. I'll just say wary rather than scared. It was like they didn't they didn't swim too far, but they also weren't hanging out just right next to me. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that's kind of the case with the with the snorkeling. It does seem like. Yeah, there's just a whole variety of different crabs. Like, have you seen the Puget? Is it Puget Sound box crab or something? The bright orange and purple. I've almost only seen immature small ones. Hmm. Yeah, they uh, they don't seem to move a whole lot. Huh? Yeah, I've seen. I guess maybe some of the other folks are posting pictures of those. That's um, where I've been seeing them. I don't know how big they are. It's difficult to judge scale sometimes when it's just this. This yeah. picture. But things like sea pens, that's been like exciting for you because you have to go deeper than you can when you snorkel and you've been able to see them. That's right. Yeah. Going from sea uh, pens or just at the edge of what you can see, just kind of far off there. Now you're just in the midst of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have several species of sea pens. Uh, their taxonomy is a little bit more complicated. Uh, I just came across a good key for them in. Taiwan, which is somewhat useful, I guess. Uh, there's another key for Japanese sea pens, but um, there is more sea pens than the guides suggest out there, and so that's another area of interest. And they have parasites, and they have nudibranchs that eat them, and they don't move. All that they don't move. No, nope. so <laughs> they do photos. retract. Uh, oh. Some of them, not okay. all of them. Some of them have a solid style down the center, uh, and some of them can retract. The orange ones, can they, they disappear into the sediment? I think so. Yeah, that was kind of my impression. Mm-hmm. Okay. That some of them are uh, more soft-bodied and others have, I don't know, it's not bone, I guess, a shell or... Yeah, I think they call it a style. It's um, some kind of horny material. Uh-huh. Huh. So have you, you've been able to, well, I mean, you traveled for the courses, and so with... I guess with scuba diving, there's nobody that says, by law, you have to be certified. But generally speaking, if you want to rent equipment or stuff like that, you're, you're typically needing to be certified. And it seems like most people get certified. That's right. And so there's a process of courses. And it sounds like many courses you can take just to, like somebody was saying, well, they have underwater photography course that you can get certified in. And so there's this whole ecosystem of, I want to learn this specialty, and you can get certified in it. Yep. And that's just kind of the way that's set up for scuba, but not much locally then. 
locally, there are courses. Uh, they just didn't work with my particular uh, professional schedule. I see. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like you don't mind traveling. So the water's, <laughs> the water's a little bit cold at times, I would imagine. It is. It's cold. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's not insanely cold. Um, yeah. I How is die. Whittier? Uh, Whittier is kind of ridiculous. Uh, Anchorage is a terrible place to dive, I think, because they have to drive all the way to Whittier, go through the tunnel, get dressed and undressed in this crazy wind tunnel, and then dive in, essentially, think of Silver Bay, but like darker and muddier. (laughs) It's not very exciting, and that's their exciting dive site. Yeah. They can also go to Seward, which is even farther, and um, it's supposed to be better. I haven't dove there. Yeah, yeah. And so in Southeast, you've, have you, oh, I guess you must have dove in around Ketchikan? Uh, just once in Metlakatla. Oh, in Metlakatla. Yeah. And then mostly around Sitka, Sitka Sound. Yeah, otherwise. yeah, yeah. Only in Sitka. Yeah. And how much diversity are you seeing in different spots? It's like, is it just, I mean, I can imagine that much like on the land, they, you know, there's muskeg and there's forest and there's a lot of differences between those. And underwater, maybe there's similar differences. Oh, yeah. Maybe more. I don't know. Uh, I don't know about more, but there's definitely lots of ecological little niches and so on. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. What are some of the... So, Rocky rocky Shores where we like to go for intertidal stuff. I don't know if that's also true for, for diving. And it seems like Rocky Shores with moderate wave action end up having the most diversity. You know, calm bays don't seem to have quite as much. And the totally exposed stuff where everything gets beat up maybe doesn't have quite as much. It's different stuff, but maybe not quite as much diversity. Is that pattern hold underwater as well? I don't know enough at this point to really... um, There's something about structure. So uh, structure is a big deal. Light is a big deal. Oxygen is huge. And... um, and then current. But current is oftentimes more of a factor as far as oxygen goes and nutri- nutrients. So um, I think there's also seasonal patterns and uh, year-to-year patterns with stronger or less strong upwellings. Mm-hmm. Um, Could you give an example of what a location that has more oxygen would be? Yeah, so oxygen, um, places with more current and wave action would have more oxygen. And then um, there will also be colder water holds more oxygen. Unless it's coming from an upwelling at times, it may not. Um, So like where a river outlet is would be a better place to um, dive in terms of oxygen? I think so the river outlets, uh, so we've experienced that snorkeling. It just makes it really difficult as far as visibility and temperature, salinity. I thought maybe on the surface, but maybe down low where you are, it would be better? Um, I don't know yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There can be a lot of sediment too at the outlet of a river, so that can make it hard. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting just places that I see um, folks posting on iNaturalist, right off the Science Center, because the Science Center has diving folks, and they've got equipment down there, and so they go down there pretty regular. And then Magic Island seems to be another popular place. You've done places, it seems like mostly off the road system, um, yeah. from, a, from a boat, Whale Bay, not Whale Bay, Whale Park maybe. I don't know if you've dove there. You definitely snorkeled there. Uh-huh, both. And then um, Herring Cove maybe. 
and I guess those are both on the road system, but then some other places north of town. And so you just, it's kind of this process of exploring and saying, look, are you looking at the bathymetry and saying, this looks good? Or are you just like, I don't know, let's drop an anchor and slide on down and see what happens. Yeah. So the first concern is just safety Mm -hmm. and our ability to dive. And so we really like, uh, we found that we really like a little, say, uh, rounded island with a good about maybe uh, 10, 20 feet down sort of kelp forest that we can do our safety stop in when we're done. It's easy to not get lost because you go down and you just swim around the rocks and wherever you end up going, as you come up, you end up in the same place and mm. do the safety stop there and come back. And it's nice because you get uh, the side that's towards the wave action, the side that's away from the wave action, the side towards more sun, towards less sun, and uh and then however deep it is, is, you know, where we start at the anchor usually. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. And then on flat areas, is there, I suppose it's easier to get lost in the, never really thought about oh, orientation yeah. in, in, in the underwater. But Especially I, with current, because yeah. you might not realize oh, exactly how far you're going. You can follow your compass, but with the current, it, you, the same amount of effort can move you 200 feet one way and 500 the other way. Uh-huh. So, well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I imagine there are dwellers of the of the sandy surfaces, and, exactly, and things that you want to see, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been uh, well. I mean, I should say, you know, iNaturalist has been sort of coming up because that's where I'm observing these things. That and your travels that you've you've now become the top observer of species in Alaska as what? of as of this year. So. <laughs> taking over the mantle of, of number one. You've got a long way to go for observation numbers, but for total species, uh, you've, you've started to uh, lap the field, I guess. Are you going to take say. the crown off your head, Matt, and uh, reach yeah, over the, and the, put the it virtual, on Paul? The virtual crown. I need to, to get him the, iNatur- the naturalist of the moment uh, trophy That's right. back. That's yeah. right. So the, yeah, so it was interesting. I mean, it's not just that. It's also the traveling throughout Southeast Alaska, and you both... The last couple times we talked, you had done a lot of trips. I don't know if you did quite as many this year, but you had your boat as an operation. Sound like you spent some time on Prince of Wales this year? That's right. Yeah, we moved it from, well, ultimately, Paul ended up moving his boat all the way to Sitka, but kind of in baby steps, exploring Prince of Wales, moving to Petersburg, and then to Cake over the course of a few trips, and then from Cake to Sitka. So we started out exploring Prince of Wales on the West Coast. We wanted to see that part of the... The Outer Coast, then. The Outer Coast, because we'd been based out of Ketchikan and done a lot of exploring from there, and so had seen some of Prince of Wales, but all on the eastern side. Um, and, yeah, we knew we were heading north, and we, we figured we'd better see the, the Prince of Wales, a little bit more of Prince of Wales before we left that part of the, the ocean. <laughs> and that was fa- fantastic. We had a lot of great uh, experiences there. So really nice. We did a couple of nice, uh, well, let's see, a really nice hike out of Craig, there's a trail called Sanahe, if anyone's passing through the Craig area, and those people who live there probably are quite familiar with it. That was a lovely hike, well, um, uh, like really well laid out and maintained and easy to follow. And it ends at, what is that device up there that is at the very top? I don't even remember, but there's something that's um, some kind of like a complex sign? with a helipad and some connexes and such uh, up on the mountain. But it's, um, it's a great view. It's fun. And then over there, some of the stairs are built of aluminum, hmm. which is 
unbelievable. Like the the amount of infrastructure on some of those flights of steps. Hmm. And was it just that trail, that, or is that the only trail that you were on, or were you seeing aluminum stairs elsewhere? We saw some in Petersburg, I right. think. There's huh. some nice trails there that are really well kept up, and same kind of uh, style of building was done on, on those trails as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I spoke with Barth, I guess it was about a year ago, uh, and he was just talking about differences in Barth Hamburg, who is our uh, landscape architect for the Forest Service here in Sitka for many years, and designed a lot of the trails uh, and talking about, like, for example, Gavin Hill, which is due to be reconstructed, uh, in part because the board steps that went in in the late 90s are, like, the end of their life. I was just on there today, actually, this morning on Gavin Hill, and, yeah, the stairs that are lower down towards the start of the trailhead are... There, and a whole new section has been obliterated, is just gone. So, oh. yeah, you can see how over time these wooden s- stairs, you know, they decay, they fall yeah. apart. Yeah, he said it's like a 25-year lifespan, and then you have to haul out all the stuff. And so it's kind of an ordeal. So, you know, he was saying that they've they've really transitioned more to building with rock as much as possible, gravel, you know, because you can just fly in the gravel and you can leave it there and shovel it out as you need to. and. But you also have to do some different design kind of work in order to keep the gravel from running off in, <laughs> in, in our high water events and that kind of thing. And so, of course, gravel helps. But I've noticed that myself, you know, uh, Beaver Lake Trail, um, they did work on that recently uh, within the last couple of years and a lot more gravel and coarser gravel, more like the D2 get gravel, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's a little, little uh, larger diameter, less likely to run off. Gavin Hill was another one. And then putting in stone steps. And I know that's, you know, it's difficult to build and maintain trails here. I mean, aluminum, I imagine, would hold up for a long time. They had, uh, I don't know if it was aluminum or steel on Gavin Hill for a while, but it was with wooden, wooden uh, you know, uh, pilings, not quite pilings, but posts. And those broke down under the snow load at times. I remember times. that, that yeah. section. It was a cool staircase while it lasted yeah. yeah and then they i think that when they redid that they they just ground they cut it steps into the rock so that'll last a lot longer i imagine so well these these two trails that we were on the one in petersburg raven's nest i think and sunahay and craig they really had like robust um trail work and i think actually they both had been had had work done to them recently too so we might have seen sort of some of the newer oh, work yeah. that they've done on, yeah. on them yeah, it's interesting how, you know, trails change over time and you spend more time on them. You're like, oh, this isn't what it was when it was brand new. <laughs> Things have a way of degrading. But so the Sunahay Trail in Craig was recommended. Definitely recommend N- that. Nice oh, yeah. views. Great mm-hmm. views. Easy to get to from the harbor. You can just walk to the trailhead, a short walk through town. Is it a long, so it goes up a, a, a mountain or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty similar to uh, going up to, I would say, Maybe Gavin Hill or something like that. A little bit higher. Maybe Picnic I mean, I guess Picnic Rock is about as high. But yeah, yeah you'd probably want to plan for a good half day to get up and get back down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To enjoy it. Well, one of the things about Prince of Wales is there's a lot more limestone and karst kind of stuff there. Did you all find yourself in some of those areas? We did over in La Boucher Bay. Um, at first, we went to the Morales, and that was wonderful. Um, just an incredible place to kayak. But La Boucherre, um and then the surrounding area over by Hole in the Wall and then up towards uh, Point Baker and Point Protection, that was just incredible kayaking, just 
amazing low tides and just these incredible, super sharp and sketchy, uh, riddled with holes coastlines. Uh huh. <laughs> I remember seeing pictures come of like uh, arrays of bat stars, of which we oh, don't yeah. really seem to have around. Oh yeah, so cool. But down there, apparently, they must be common. Everywhere. That was the morels, I think. Where you yeah, first started that was in the morels. So Which... bat stars and um, uh, feather boa kelp oh, okay. uh, sort of reach their northern edge there. There's a few other things as well that will go up to about Craig and then stop. Um, and uh, we see them on Baker Island. Uh, where else did we go? A few places like that. But then uh, when we get to QU, it just stops. There wasn't. Yeah, I've seen feather boa kelp here once as something that washed ashore at Halibut Point Wreck. Mm-hmm. Somebody told me about it, and so I went out there. And so I have an observation of it, <laughs> but I've never seen it actually growing. So, it, But it's pretty common down Prince of Wales, yeah. West Prince of Wales. Uh, I did, never did see the limpet down there. There's a limpet that lives only on the feather boa kelp. I've seen it down in the lower 48. I have yet to see it in Alaska, uh-huh. but it's it's very hard to find. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like there were some other interesting things that you pointed out to me when we were uh, down in that area. Maybe it was more closer to Cake, but there was that type of nudibranch that only grows on, it blends perfectly into the, uh, yes. what was this one? So there's two species of nudibranch, at least two. So uh, f- to, to backtrack, there's a bryozoan that grows seasonally on the blades of large kelps. And so these bryozoans, they make, they're called kelp lace bryozoans, uh, membranipora, and then there's some debate about the species sometimes. But they uh, look like a little piece of lace on the blade of a kelp. And so if you look at a piece of kelp, you look at the blades, especially in late summer, you'll see all these little white sort of um, crests on there. And so these crests are made of little animals that filter seawater. There's a couple of different nudibranchs, so sea slugs, that look exactly like them. And we're kayaking along off of QU, and uh, I'm just saying, oh, there's this crazy little nudibranch that supposedly exists, but it's not a real thing because no one's ever found it. <laughs> and so I grab a piece of kelp, and guess what? It's right there. Mm-hmm. But they're almost, they like are exactly, they look exactly like a bryozoan. You'd have to, I don't, you have to look very carefully and like <laughs> try to, you know, then if you do think you see one, try to scrape it off so you could actually <laughs> see, you know, see it against your flesh and actually make sure it's a real nudibranch. It, it's pretty cool how well camouflaged they are. I was able to, I actually found one this summer, my first time ever this at Sandy Beach. I was there yes. and I, I think maybe Karen had posted on iNaturalist or maybe you had or maybe both. And so it's kind of in my mind, oh, this is something to look for. And so I was looking at these little lace bryozoans, and and then the lines were moving on one of them, and I was like, oh, uh, that's perfect. it. Because, <laughs> yes, as you said, it blends in very well, but, but it was like when they move, then the lines are moving, and the bryozoans are, are definitely not moving, so... So I took a bunch of pictures of, of that one, and yeah, it was fun to fun to find that one because uh, yeah, they. I didn't know to look for it. I wouldn't no. have looked, wouldn't have like accidentally found it. I no. don't think so. No. Yeah, it was kind of a fascinating one. So there was another cute little small thing um, that you taught me about, Paul, which I now have forgotten the name of it. But it was also in that same area, so I'm going to sort of put you on the spot and see if you can remember this as well. Um, they were these cute little guys that they were best viewed if we could see them in the water. 
Oh. And when you kind of took them out of the water, you couldn't see as well. They're cute little like jelly ended. Um, oh, yes. What, what Those are that? great. Yeah. Ta- uh, they're little hydrozoans, I think, uh, stocked jellies. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, you found some of those. Because uh, there's, a, there's a species that's here, and then there's another species that's undescribed that's also in southeast Alaska. It's shown up on iNaturalist. I don't know if that's the one that you found or not. But Yeah, there's Haloclistus sanjuanensis, supposedly, which is supposed to be something else. But mm-hmm. in any case, they're all beautiful. Yeah. And they're just little tiny. It looks like a sea anemone, but smaller and cuter and like a vase with its own little flowers. And they were... Super abundant in that one spot. Millions of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. And like the size of your small pinky fingernail, super tiny. Are they, are they something that we can see here in Sitka? Do you two know? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I've, I found them at the uh, shoreline along the, between the Science Center and Totem Park. Okay. They seem to like eelgrass. Eelgrass. Uh, Almost always on eelgrass, but sometimes on kelp. And I found them at um, Sandy Beach. I found a different species uh, bet- uh, south of Magic Island, uh, that was it looked different. It's it's not a Halicleistus. It's like a Mania or something like that. Um, uh, but yeah, so yeah, they're like little tree things. Like they have a long, skinny stalk, and then like this this set of pom pom. Uh, you know, it's pom poms at the end of the branches, yeah. kind of thing. Look uh, up stalked <laughs> jellies, and then the other one we were talking about is the cryptic nudibranch. Cryptic mm. nudibranch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I post this on my web uh, website, this this episode, I will include a picture of at least one of those, and maybe both Perfect. of those, yeah. so, nice. so people can see. Yeah, yeah. And then you discovered the smell of twin flowers. Oh gosh. Well, yeah. That I mean, maybe that's known to many listeners, but um, yeah, twin flowers. Did you know that, Matt? They have a very if you, especially if you get a, a, a like sometimes they grow in a pretty dense cluster yes. and they have a very perfumey smell, so yes. for lack of a better word for me. Exactly. It's incredible. We yeah. found an abundance. Like just they had I don't know why they were all together, but they had taken over a log and it was just covered in pink, these beautiful yeah. pink tiny bells. And then but even before you could see them, you could smell this lovely smell What's in the that air. Smell. Yeah. We don't have so many flowers that have a strong smell, but that's one of them. The Tall Mountain Shooting Star is another one that has a strong smell. Oh, I didn't know oh. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've smelled that one before. Not the one that grows. Not the other one. We have the um, Pretty Shooting Star, or whatever. The Primula uh, Jeffrey Eye is the one that smells. That's the one we see. It, it's on the shoreline sometimes too, like on the beach meadows, but. It's the one that you see up high or in muskegs and stuff. Not Jeffrey Eyes or yes. Jeffrey Eye is the one is that, the smelling is one. the one that has a has a smell. And then um, the little single delights. Oh yeah, they yeah, have those are great. Somebody yeah. I heard described it as jasmine, which I don't really know what jasmine smells like. To me, they smell like lemon. Uh, oh, they have okay. kind of like a lemon, a fresh lemon sort huh. of smell to them. And I have occasionally, mostly, I have to stick my nose in them to smell. Them. But every once in a while, I'll just be walking along and I go, I can smell it. And then I'll look, and sure enough, there's a few of them blooming. So I don't know. I guess it would make sense that when they're like, whatever that's doing for them, there'd be a time when it's most intense and mm. then you're most likely to smell it. And other than that, you might have to work at, because I don't always smell the shooting stars, but sometimes, mm. the, you know, there's patches of them along Harbor Mountain Trail after you get up above the bowl and you're kind of going along there. And I've smelled them when I was just walking along there mm. sometimes. But, um, but yeah, that's another one. But yeah, we don't have yeah. that many that are have a smell, Fragrant. but the twin flowers are easy to walk by because they're small and you're just like, oh, 
Yeah. But I try to remember to, I guess, as they say, stop and smell the roses, so to speak. But uh, (laughs) stop and stick your nose into flowers. And I've heard that the chocolate leaves have a smell of like rotting flesh or something. right. Because they're attracting flies that uh, like that sort of thing. Right. But I've never, maybe I haven't worked too hard at it. And maybe (laughs) there's good reason for that. (laughs) I don't know. But I've never, I've never actually smelled that, uh, you know, that unpleasant smell. But, uh, yeah, it is kind of interesting. Well, that's a fun one. So that was yeah. all along there. And yeah, they, they do, they seem to be colonizers. They, they grow, they spread over the surface. And Yeah, there were hundreds. Which and, is beautiful to see. Yeah. It's so cool when they take over like that. I, yeah. I've seen them sometimes along a trail, but also along, uh, you know, the Kramer part, Kramer Avenue part of Harbor Mountain Road before you get to Gate Zero. There's a couple of places there I've seen where they're just at the edge huh. and sometimes draped down onto the volcanic ash. Beautiful. Bank there. Yeah. 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 They're, they're a fun one to to look for in the in the summer when they're blooming. That particular spot that you were where we saw them this summer was on the Kiku Islands, if I remember correctly. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But before we get up to the Kiku Islands, I just want to make a plug for the Morels as far as like a place to go and do some really lovely kayaking. To, it's a, such a fun place to have if you have a way to have a base on one of the islands with a tent or a boat or if you're doing a long distance kayaking trip, like be sure to try to time it with the weather to take a little detour out there. Are they and pretty stay. exposed or are they not too bad to get to? Um, They're a little bit exposed. They're not as bad as like Warren Island or uh, Coronation, but they're heading further out. Yeah. In that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and if it's nasty out, there's always uh, the Sluice Bay um, Cloak. We had fun kayaking in there too. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the other things about that part of southeast Alaska, uh, as compared to Sitka area specifically, is our large mammals are, I mean, there's deer, but there, black bear and wolves, and here, brown bears. Did you, you know, did you have experience with bears or wolves or anything down there that was different than what you're used to around Sitka? Oh. So someday we'll see wolves on the beach. That's our hope. It hasn't happened yet. But, so, yeah, I was going to say we, we didn't have a, a, an experience with wolves, but we did in a way because we saw a wolf den, which was uh, so amazing. This whole experience was, I, I just found it amazing. So this was in the Kiku Islands, uh, so closer to Sitka. And um, we had kayaked around to Fossil Bay and we decided the next day to try and walk and just get some time on the land and then go to the same place, but on foot, which ended up being just a fantastic hike. So so much to see um, on that particular walk. Lots of flowers, lots of, there's a lake, there's a river, but also there was a wolf den. And we, Paul and I, I think both of us thought, oh, this is a bear den when we found it. Because that's what we're used to. But it didn't quite fit. So we were just standing there and it kind of had the feel of, you know, when you stand on one of those uh, land otter islands. So there's these islands here that are just kind of barren because they're really heavily used by land otters and they have these holes and shells and whatnot. And it just, it's a bit unnatural in a way because there's not a lot of plants on the ground. And it kind of felt like that, but then larger. And there was a, a hole underneath a tree and I looked in there and there's the head of a baby deer. And the foot of a baby deer, and I, we got out of there pretty quickly. Yeah, and it was a prominent <laughs> spot that looked over a muskeg. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it's a bear den. But then, 
I did some research, and it seems like it was a wolf then. Yeah. And that makes more sense because it's actively used now, and then the, the way the runs were organized and so on, that, uh, that would fit a wolf then. But that was uh, a, a pretty incredible experience to sit. And I wonder if they were down there. They were probably down there as we were standing there. Yeah, at least the pup. Mm-hmm. Or pups, yeah. I guess, if there was more than one. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I think about bear dens mostly as a winter thing. And then in the summer, you know, they'll bed down somewhere, but not really den up in the same way that they're at. But I don't know. I don't, and black bears, I don't know either. Mm-hmm. Um, but wolves, I guess I think of wolf dens as being a um, nursery sort of time, you know, a birthing and nursery sort of time. And that in the wintertime that they're probably not using them. But again, I don't know. That would be interesting to talk to somebody who's doing that. So I wonder, I wonder how much... It's possible to say one way or the other based just on the seasonality. And I mean, clearly, if it has a, a bond head and, and leg in it, it's fresh. And yeah, I, I think I would have taken the better part of valor and, and been a little conservative myself yeah. and gone, yeah, you don't really want to be messing around with the bare cash if that's what's going on there. That's what we sure. thought it was. And we yeah. took off immediately. You know, we made our presence known and we got a little bit louder than we were and we left the space. But um, and, and reading the article, we can, if you want to share that too, we can share the link with you to an interesting article about wolf dens. And the description of the den is from the article is really fits what we we found. But I think we also were so quick to leave that we didn't investigate in a way that could have confirmed it because they talk a lot about in the article about wolf dens having this lower area, which was where we were, but often that lower area is strewn with animal bones because mm. the pups, the, the parents are bringing food in and the pups are chewing on things and eating it. And and so perhaps if we had, you know, not thought it was wisest to leave right away and had thought of it being a wolf den, we could have looked around a little bit more and seen some of the other signs, which would have been like, yeah, that muskeg down below the den would have been maybe filled with those bones mm. and it would have been con- able to confirm it a little bit better. Yeah, it makes me wonder if you had, like, backed off to a place where you could observe from a distance how long it would take, you know, assuming that it was wolves for wolves to show up. And that might have been exciting. That would have been amazing. Yeah, Yeah. And their sense of smell is so keen that I don't know. Yeah. Well, the pups might have come out if they were were in there. They might have been like, okay, we're done. And uh, we're not afraid of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now that you're gone. (laughs) We don't know any better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fun. Yeah, that's an exciting, exciting uh, experience. And so it sounded like you went north. Did you end up running across any moose or anything as you went north towards Petersburg and Cake? I mean, we saw evidence of moose, but we yeah. never did see a moose or elk for that matter. Yeah, I guess Adelan Island and some of those have spread around a little mm-hmm. bit to some of the surrounding islands, as I understand it. Um, Black bear, pretty common. I don't know if we, I can't actually think of an instance, though, where we saw... Black bear, for we sure. We did. Did we? Yeah, I yeah, 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 we did. At this point, there, um, I remember for sure there was a time that uh, we were catching a halibut and watching humpbacks, and there was a black bear on the beach behind oh, the humpbacks. that's right. Yes. It was a very Alaskan moment. That's yeah. true. Yes. <laughs> you guys Alaska much? Or, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lots of uh, water activity, lots of whales and um, in the morels, and then lots of great otter nurseries in that area as well, very protected for for the otters. And then north, as we were in near La Bruchere, which is getting towards like Point Baker, some orcas were around, killer whales were around. Nice. Those are ones that I kind of wonder about. They seem definitely more common on inside waters, but 
maybe it's just the fact that there's social media these days. And so when anybody sees a killer whale, we can all know about it in ways that weren't quite so possible in the past. But it seems like there's more of a round along the road system than I would have thought, you know, from a few years ago. But um, it's just so exciting. Yeah. When you yeah. See and them, everybody so. is like, oh, there's killer whales. And then so yeah. you see, of course, I inevitably see it like 10 hours later because I don't, <laughs> you know, stay glued to social media. So, yeah. Um, so I'm like, oh. I was by there an hour before, an hour after that. But <laughs> <laughs> I've seen them a few times. Actually, this fall, there was, um, I was doing some observing work in the channel, and um, a pair of, or two came in. They must have swam, and we didn't see them until they were inside the breakwater. So I'm suspecting they came from the north end and swam in and just did a loop around the north end of the channel, <laughs> you know, not even as far in as the Petra Marine dock at the north side there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then swam, swam out again. And uh, and then yeah, Looking somebody had a video of of them right on the shore at Seamart, and then okay. more recently there was uh, I guess a pod out at Silver Bay that was actually had eaten a sea lion, and then were training another uh, training a young on another sea lion out there, and so there was some some action going on. But you all had I guess it was a few years ago that you you got to see that sort of thing while you're out on the boat here. Yeah, right after snorkeling, which is a humbling experience. <laughs> oh, I'll bet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very sobering, but was quite exciting too. And mm-hmm. yeah, it makes you feel bad for the sea lions. Like, gosh, they have a hard time making a living, and then now all these killer whales are using them to teach their young. And yeah, I bet all the ribs are broken, and uh, they're getting flung up in the. Gosh. Yeah, and they're solid the animals. I mean, like right. they're yeah. heavy, solid animals. So the amount of strength that must be in those killer whales to yeah. be able to do that is kind of incredible. Yeah. We were concerned near the morels there were a lot of um, sea otters that were hauled out and the rocks outside of the, not the morels, La Boucher, where we saw the otters. And it definitely looked like there was a a pod of them coming through to go hunting Mm. for the, um, yeah, for whatever was hauled out on the the rocks there. Maybe I'm remembering, maybe it was seals, actually, that seems more likely, but... um, so we, we lingered and watched for a while, and it definitely looked like these orcas were doing some loops, some big loops around the rocks and seeing what was going to come back into the water. But all the seals were out of the water, you know, as soon as they, they could be. Yeah, that was – I had an experience with that. The one summer I worked as a naturalist on, on a boat, um, I, later it was in August, and we were down by readout, and – you know, there was uh, seals on a rock, and I was kind of the typical, you know, they sit up there with the tides up, and then as the tide goes, they just kind of hang out there, and, and, and it's just all kind of nice. And, and then um, I said, they don't generally climb up there. And no sooner had I said that, it seemed like within a minute or two, there's one boop, 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 climbing up the rock, and another one. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, what are you going to do? The animals are animals, right? Later, I found out that there was a pot of c- c- uh, killer whales down there. <laughs> that showed up later, like right in that area, and were training their young on a seal. Oh, and then gosh. I was like, oh, that's probably what was up. They're like, no, thank you. <laughs> we're yeah. out. Yeah. Out and up uh, as best <laughs> as possible. They're not, I mean, sea lions are pretty good climbers. They can get on those, get up those rocks pretty far, but seals, not so much. And uh, so, yeah, it was kind of funny. And then after the fact, you know, but now I know if I see seals climbing up a rock, maybe I should watch for sea lions. I mean, not uh, sea lions, killer, uh, whales. killer whales. Yes. Predators, anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's funny. So that's uh, would there are a lot of sea otters down there as well, or? Um, 
Well, there were sea otters. I think maybe that's why I misspoke. The, a lot of sea otters, there's like sea otter nurseries in the morels. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, just kind of it's a protected area. There's lots of rocks. There's lots of little islands. Um, and I think also a little bit further away from people. Like right, a little that's bit what out. I was kind of wondering, if they were a little less wary of people there than yeah. they might be like in Sitka Sound, for example. Right. Although in Sitka Sound, it does seem to matter. It seems like they can tell some kinds of boats from other kinds of boats. Sure. And, and they don't really care so much about some. But um but yeah, I wondered if, if maybe that was remote enough that yeah. it didn't, didn't have a lot of uh, In the pressure. time of year, I guess, it just seemed like there was a lot of baby action going on. A lot of humpbacks, you know, coupled up, a bunch of them together, feeding. Like, it just seemed like a nice area for the marine mammals to sort of make a living and feel protected. And then it, by La Boucher, I would say it was seals that were hauling out and enjoying the plentiful rocks all around that interesting coastline to get away from killer whales apparently right. but yeah. also just to yeah. enjoy <laughs> enjoy being out of the water <laughs> and we also saw sea otters eating octopus there which mm. is oh, fun that's right yeah it seems like kind of a a challenge to it's hold. a project yeah <laughs> but it's a project that they enjoy very 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 much <laughs> Like, there were two of them, and they kind of kept trying to keep it away from the other one. It was a beloved, it was a coveted piece of food. I see. Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's <laughs> cool. Yeah, I've seen pictures of them eating octopus before, but never never seen that myself. Normally just, like, they get their rock, and I guess they'll put it under their armpit or something oh. to their favorite rock, and then they'll, you know, they'll, roll, they'll go get their clam, and then they'll, you know, it's not quite that fast, but put it on their chest. Banging the clam on the rock on their chest. Yeah. And then they roll over to clean the table, and then they go back and do some more. And I never, I didn't know, I've never heard that about the armpit. That's pretty cute. They tuck it in there for their dive down. Now, I don't remember who told me that or where I heard that, but but I heard that, that they, like, have their favorite favorite rock yeah, I think that's yeah. right. And I think also there's some cultural differences between different groups and individuals. Some are more chewers and some are more like bangers <laughs> of things. And so they have different shaped teeth and and some of them have purple teeth from eating lots of sea urchins. And so you can kind of tell from the skull sometimes. And and some uh, some are definitely, I, if I remember correctly, most sea otters only learn to eat two or three things. Yeah. That's why I remember some years ago, part of the Natural History Seminar Series, a guy that had studied sea otters in both Glacier Bay and in the Aleutians said that if you look at the total diversity of diet for sea otters, it's huge. But individual sea otters tend to eat much, much smaller. Like there's only a few things that they like to eat. And it's just collectively they eat a lot of different things. But um, individual sea otters, not so much. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like people. If you look at all the things in the world that people eat, it's pretty amazing diversity. If you look at what you and I eat, well, you guys probably eat a little more diversely than I do, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, much less diversity than than Mostly mac and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly from the beach. <laughs> so, yeah, it is yeah. it is kind of interesting how that works. And But how, I guess if you could learn to recognize the sea otters and if you're working with them, presumably you can start to do that a little bit. But um, you mentioned that there was a, was it a fossil bay or something? Did you find oh, yeah. places where there were fossils to find? Or Well, it's called Fossil Bay on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the area where the, is it called a pictogram? I you, think so, a pictograph, yeah. pictograph that you can find on the, the wall of Fossil Bay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's in... Um, it's not called Kanach Bay, I believe. Yeah. Uh, it used to be called Saginaw Bay. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah out of cake. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, is it Rocky Rocky Pass there that has? Um, uh, I've, I've heard that there's fossils in there. Maybe you all had been kayaking. Yeah. So a few years ago, we did a nice kayaking trip where we saw lots and lots and lots of fossils in the Kikus, but we didn't go to those particular spots this time. Oh, I see. And yeah. we um, on the the time that we went kayaking around the point into Fossil Bay and the time that we hiked there, both those times, we didn't get to the actual fossil part. There's not fossils in the entire area. So this time, I don't think we saw a whole lot of fossils, just a few. Yeah. Right? Some brachiopods. Yeah, I think that's actually true. Yeah. I think the the pictograph was so stunning that that sort of didn't need to see much else after that. And then, um, yeah, we didn't go kayaking around in the same way that we had in years previous, where you can just kind of kayak along a wall and see it filled with mm. with uh, fossils. Just embedded in the exactly. rock. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, which huh. is pretty cool. But if you kayak around that point into Kanak Bay, uh-huh. um, you'll be along, you know, beautiful rock walls and interesting shorelines. So it's definitely a fabulous kayaking location. And there's just um, saxifrages and junipers cascading over the cliffs. Beautiful it's walls. stunning there. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. And then the uh, uh, red argier dogwoods and... Just it, it looks very different from Sitka. It's a hundred percent worth a trip. There's very few ferries now, but if anyone can go down there, do some kayaking, come back. Very, very worth it. The whole Cake Kiku mm-hmm. Northern QU area is stunning. Hmm. And did you? Is there limestone in that area too? Is that part of what oh, you're yeah. seeing? Because yeah. mm-hmm. I know there's a lot. There's some plants and especially mosses and liverworts and stuff that are. Calcifiles, they like the limestone sorts of things. And Paul was definitely excited about the, as we were kayaking, and you could see those giant limestone cliffs, mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting plants kind of cascading down. I don't know if you remember any in particular. Yeah. Um, I should, but I don't. <laughs> and honestly, there's a lot that I just didn't know what they were. Yeah. yeah. And it is a little bit trickier in that you can't, you might have to use your binoculars to look right. at them. You know, you can't necessarily get right up to them. Yeah. Well, it is, uh, it was interesting to see. You know, as your I, observations came in on iNaturalist, there were mosses and stuff, some of them pretty striking that I was like, oh, I've never seen that before. And uh, that were, looked like they were associated with limestone kinds of things and uh, or calcareous rocks anyway. And uh, lots of stuff that is like, well, I mean, it might be different and super interesting, but only if you know what you're looking at. Right. Otherwise, it's just like another little green moss kind of thing. <laughs> so hard, hard to say too much, uh, at least for, for us non-experts. But... Um, but then I know, so that was most of your trips in Southeast. You said you went over to Petersburg, and, mm-hmm. and then I, I know my son had a chance to, to go with Paul to bring That's the right. boat from um, Cake over to, to Sitka, which he enjoyed doing. And, and you, like, picked one of the very few weather windows this fall to do it. <laughs> it was, Sometimes it just works out. Yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, it seems like there was some, some deliberation about exact timing because there was, like, storms either side <laughs> of the trip, and, and then it's been, well— we were, on September 10th or 11th, we were a couple inches below normal for the year in terms of total rainfall. And currently, we are over 20 inches above normal. Yeah. So since since that time in September, since essentially the middle of September, we've had an excess of rainfall relative yeah. to normal. We're over 100 inches for the year to date. And um, They got some rain on that trip, as I recall. There was some rainy walking yeah. in the back of St. John the Baptist Bay. I think and you I, talked about I paid dearly for it on the leg for um, Ketchikan, from Ketchikan to Klawak. I got 
I got beat up. So <laughs> I feel like I, I paid my dues. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> This all comes out in a wash, and that one was nicer. But yeah, they, they saw a, a pigeon guillemot that was almost completely white. And uh, uh, yellow bell dune, uh, which um, in summer is not so common here. Yeah, right? yeah. I think there's a few around that that are non-breeding birds that you see, but not around Sitka very much. But I think mm -hmm. more on the inside. It seems like they hang out. So, I mean, I hear about them being seen Glacier Bay. They're on the checklist. They're considered like rare or very rare for mm -hmm. the summertime. And Pacific loons, likewise, non-breeding birds that are just like, eh, why are we going to go somewhere else? There's food here, and we're not. <laughs> We're not busy with anything, so we'll just stay here and eat. Um, but then, and I know I talked to Matt Muir when he was in town, uh, but you had a big trip uh, to Haines, Skagway, Juneau a little bit, and then uh, Sitka, which was That's sort of right. a dedicated iNaturalist, naturalist kind of uh, outing. Yeah, it was, I, the, I think, the first time that we've done this in Southeast where iNaturalist-oriented people go and just tour the area and uh i thought it was fun we got good weather again and uh we ran into some really fun people like jen chapland over in Juneau, and bob armstrong there as well and um and then uh, uh judy hall jacobson over in haynes who's so enthusiastic her enthusiasm is definitely contagious we had so much fun she even went to juno to continue the party down there and um yeah we we just had fun we looked at a lot of mushrooms and i really struggle with mushrooms with most things um we're always learning and forgetting and realizing how little we know and this is this has been a year where mostly i've realized how little i know and um but the one area where i feel like i started sort of learning a little bit more was mushrooms because uh In Skagway and Haines, there are many, many, many more. And being with people who know mushrooms and can just tell you something about them is very valuable. I just learn so much more than when I just grab a mushroom and try to leaf through the book. Yeah, it, it definitely being with people that have experience and can point you to what you're looking at. <clears throat> and maybe with the key or what or the or the description say this is what these things see this thing here that's what those words mean because sometimes when you're just looking at the words trying to say like there's a, a flower that is a couple of species and it's like are is there conspicuous tufts of white hairs and i'm like mm -hmm. i don't know there's like hairs are those considered conspicuous tufts or <laughs> and and the other problem is, is i don't know like if i could see both and have them clearly separated and I go oh, okay yeah, that's obvious or maybe it's not obvious and the problem is you just don't know so being with somebody who does know uh, definitely shortens that learning curve a bit and it seems like the diversity in Juno, Skagway, Haines for mushrooms just based on what I see come in through iNaturalist and the people that are observing there is much much greater than we have oh, yeah. here it's amazing here. it's so different there's so many more species and I don't 100% know why but I suspect some of it has to do with plant diversity And uh, I noticed this when, uh, when I take an observation of a mushroom. So for those of us that do a naturalist or other kinds of record keeping, you take a picture of the mushroom. I take a picture of the mushroom. And then uh, the, the bottom, the top, a scale, you know, in situ or like how it was found. And then I try to write what trees it was found under. And I remember at one point in Skagway looking up and it was birch. 
hmm. pine, spruce, fir, like all of the trees. And so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think there's that. I suspect also the the relatively more con- continental climate, so they have more heat there maybe helps. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wouldn't – I mean, they also just have more accessible area. Like when you think about the, the amount of space that we're actually looking for mushrooms, it's relatively small, and you could drive to different places. I, like I wonder if you could go out on Kruzoff Island, for example, and, you know, go out on some of the old roads. Maybe you wouldn't find mm-hmm. any more there. But I wonder if maybe you would just because you can cover more space. Like if it's bad in one spot. Or Prince of Wales would be another yeah. example where it's also island. Because the other thing is like there's more diversity on the main continental areas typically. You know, mushrooms do travel via spores and stuff. But but I think there's also probably a little bit of an effect of that. But That's true. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I think it's probably a, a combination of factors. Shalikov seems to have lots of mushrooms. Shalikov Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, not Shalikov, well, uh, yeah. Shalikov Cabin, Eric Trail. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem to have a lot more species of mushrooms. Just an mm. abundance, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and it's mostly spruces there, I would imagine. It's, oh, yeah, big yeah. spruce. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of interesting, just all these questions. That's part of what fascinates me is, mm-hmm. like, what is it that's driving the differences in the species composition? And, and uh, you know, if you were just dropped in, blindfolded to a place and didn't know where, could you like recognize where just based on what it kind of looks like and at what scale, you know, could you mm-hmm. tell Indian River Valley from Stargavin or something like that if you're just in the forest? And that would be a subtler difference. It sounds like you go to, as you were describing around Cake, like there's red ears or your dogwood. Yeah. You're not going to see that around Sitka mm-hmm. typically. So, And they have lots of maple. Mm, the Douglas maple? Yeah, in, yeah. in Cake, lots of maple. Mm. Yeah, the only one I've seen of those is... Um, at uh, Lake Eva Trailhead. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, the islands Catherine just islands outside of... Are, yeah, Catherine... Are there some on Catherine oh, Island also? No, it's the islands near Catherine Island. Yeah, what are those smaller islands I don't remember what those called? are called. The small islands just outside of Lake Eva. Yeah. Those have a bunch of maples on oh, them. okay. Right, right. Interesting. Can't think right. of their names Must either. be some climate thing driving that. You know, the red, the red paintbrush is mm-hmm. another one that I... Mm-hmm. It's like it's not out here. It's south of here and north of here and everywhere but here, it seems like. So, yeah, mysteries, curiosity, things things that drive. Yeah. So do you have plans for the coming coming year? Uh, scuba was last year's big plan, a big thing. I presumably you'll continue with that. But uh, I don't think we have a clear Southeast Alaska plan for this coming year. We have this one route that we've been talking about for years that I feel, I feel in my bones it might happen this year. All right, which is just um, to to do a circuit, you know, from you could kind of start from ever from wherever along the circuit. But I think we've talked about starting at like Fred's Creek, and then going up Crater Ridge, and then down to the Big Beach, and just making a full loop, go to Shalikov, and then walk out to Mud Bay, and then that would be the tricky spot probably, walking from Mud Bay to around to Brent's Beach, and if, then... If you can go up onto the muskegs, I imagine it's not too bad. Yeah. If you're limiting yourself to the shoreline, it might be tougher. Yeah. Well, I guess that part feels mysterious to me. Oh. I don't feel like I know what's back yeah. there. But it's very short. It's only it's a quarter mile, true. right? And there are yeah. muskegs and yeah. low tide yeah. and... And as we explore more on Kruzoff, I get more and more curious about this idea that I think lots of folks have had over the years, which is to walk some of the parts that are like the southern section. Yeah. You know, I know people have tried to circumnavigate it, and I, there's some appeal to that. I've talked to 
two different people that have gone Shalikoff around to Shoals Point okay. on the coast. And both of them commented on the lack of water. Right. <laughs> said, make sure you take enough water, something like Beaver Point or something up well before you get out to the Cape, that the water just disappears. It's okay. all running through the like basalt. Tennis. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah the, the whatever, there's lots of cracks and stuff like that, and the water just is all subsurface. So, okay. um, so yeah, somebody was wringing out moss, <laughs> you know, to get water and stuff. And, and uh, but yeah, yeah, drop off or, or go over from. But it sounded like yeah, and then and then some of those points on the on that Cape uh, side there that there's a lot of blowdown and stuff there, and some of it's a little unpleasant. Depending on how you go, like following game trails is probably sensible. But some of the like you could shortcut theoretically on the map, but they end up being like these matchstick piles of okay. <laughs> blown down trees and that kind of thing. That's maybe not so fun. But that was. Decades ago, in that in the case of the people that were telling me about that, so yeah, I'm curious if you guys do that one. I'd definitely be interested in hearing about it because it's uh, it's uh, having had a chance to at least look a little bit there from the boat. There's some pretty wild coastline out yeah, there and right? cliffs and, and right. uh, volcanic kind of rock sorts of formations and all that kind of stuff out there. Be pretty. I think you'd be way more inland than you might uh, it parts ex- yeah. expect or plan for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It parts, but, I would imagine. So, yeah. and then depending, I guess you could cut across country if you wanted yeah. to. I imagine people have done all sorts of things over right. there uh, over the years. Yeah, there are some lakes between the main crater and the cape. Yeah, yeah, and those would be interesting to sample as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's it is interesting to consider what might what might all be around there and I just was seeing some folks on Haida Gwaii that were posting uh, they apparently had a big storm there and like stuff that washed up like sea anemones and all sorts of stuff starfish and clams all washed oh. up in this big storm and it made me wonder about the outer coast of Kruzov like Shelkov or even Schultz Point or something if after these some of these storms if there are times that there's just a bunch of stuff that's washed oh, up bet. on the beach right yeah, I would suspect so. Yeah, the thing I think one time going to Shalakov, uh, I was struck by just having realizing how much that place changes because of those storms. Mm. Like just at one time we went there and there was a huge, you know, sand cliff and like you know cl- the cliff. beach was almost it was gone, totally shifted, you know, and it had just we had gone at a different time of year and probably after some storms and it just was amazing to see the impact and how much change there can be. Wow, yeah. I've noticed that on the beach around Shoals Point, like the one that faces out towards uh, this area, just like it was very different sort of topography in in a couple of different ships. But, um, well, yes, we're wrapping up our time here. It'd be fun to chat again next year around this time, see what you've done in the meantime. But our cruise-off adventure. Your cruise-off adventure and maybe even beyond. Who knows? Yes. Until next time. Well, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Yep. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded yesterday with Paul Norwood and Brooke Schaefer. I want to thank them again for spending some time to visit with me and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. You can find archives of the show at sitkanature.org slash raven. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.